<clears throat> Happy Sabbath, church. Um, thank you. <laughs> That's my boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, God is good, you know. Um, I think there's always a reason to smile about that. I don't know what kind of weeks you've had. Maybe you've had a week like mine. <laughs> um, but God is always good. There's always a reason to adore him. And um, his redeeming love is very real. It's good to see you. It really is, you know. Uh, I see some faces that I haven't seen in a while. And so I'm blessed to see you here this Sabbath. And I pray that God would, would really lead us as we study together. Um, I, I hope you're ready to study. Because, uh, you know, we've been going through this series on Malachi, chapter by chapter. And I thought, man, uh, chapter four, it's only six verses long. We can do this. <laughs> but this is the last chapter of the entire Old Testament. And, and wouldn't it be just like God to pack so much into this thing that you could probably do a whole month on? Um, and we're not going to do a whole month today, just, just so you know. But I just hope you're ready to study. <laughs> because God has a message for us, and it's going to be um, a surprise to every one of us, including myself. We'll see how this goes. No, God is good, and he wants to speak. And so I want to pray that God would speak. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, today we are in awe of your goodness. Your redeeming love. That when we say God is love, we realize um, that you are that at a cost, an infinite cost to yourself. Thank you, God, for being our Redeemer. Thank you, God, for being our Creator. Thank you for being the one who wants to speak to each and every one of us through your word. And I pray that as we open together, please send us your Holy Spirit. Thank you in advance for the ways that you're going to teach us. Thanks in advance for the ways that you're going to challenge us to study even more. Thanks in advance for the ways that you're going to appeal to our hearts to truly give you our best. In Jesus' name, let the family say, amen, amen. Go with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. If you don't know where Malachi is, maybe you know where Matthew is. Malachi is right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 4. Only four chapters long, and this is the, the last book in the entire Old Testament canon. It's the last of the Hebrew scriptures. And Malachi, as we've been walking through chapter by chapter, we've realized that Malachi is a message for the remnant of the Old Testament, you know, those who had just returned from Babylonian captivity, they were trying to regain their identity, they had promises of what God would do in their midst, but they hadn't seen all of those fulfilled, and so they were on this cruise control, autopilot, wondering what God was going to do next, but not really taking ownership to see what they would do about it. This is a remnant that was in need of revival. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we found Malachi, or God speaks through Malachi to address some very specific issues that Malachi's uh, kindred, kinsmen, were going through. Leftover worship, we talked about in chapter 1. There were, there were issues of faithlessness or infidelity in terms of leadership and in terms of even people's own marriages and households. And then in chapter 3, last week, we, we started kind of, we noticed that there was a shift in the focus. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, the latter half of Malachi, there's a shift in the focus, not just focusing on the specific issues of the people and turning their, uh, their behaviors around, 
But here in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're actually seeing how God, what, what God himself is going to do to revive the remnant. Did you notice that last week? God himself, he promised that he would be a refiner. Remember? He's coming as a refiner. He's drawing near. and He's appealing to people to return to him. And here in chapter 4, the real shift, the spotlight moves not just from the people's shortcomings, but now the spotlight hits on God. What he is about to do. What he is going to do as the refiner. And so as we wrap up this series on Malachi, what we're going to find this series about giving God our best, we are going to find that it's not so much about what we do to give God our best, but what He will do. Did you catch it? It's not so much that we do this in order to bring a smile to God's face, but what we let God do in our lives. So are you ready to study? Malachi chapter 4. What's interesting to note is that the very first word, at least in the New King James that I'm reading from, the very first word is the word for. For behold, it's carrying over the conversation from chapter 3. The things in chapter 4 are really a continuation. It must be seen in the stream of chapter 3. In fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, chapter 4, it's actually considered chapter 3 verse 19 through 24. (laughs) So this is actually a continuation of chapter 3. Actually, so let's back up just a little bit because there are two groups in chapter 4 that have been introduced to us in chapter 3. So turn a page if you need to. Chapter 3, verse 13. There are two groups of people, two groups of people who are actually talking amongst themselves, all right? Chapter 3, verse 13. If you're there, say amen. Amen. And I'm sorry if it sounds like my voice is a little bit tired. Please forgive me there. Chapter 3, verse 13, the Bible says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. There are some people who are talking smack, all right? They're talking smack against God. Yet you say, what? What have we spoken against you? In verse 14, you have said, It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud, what? Blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up or esteemed or lifted up they even tempt god and go free this is really interesting this first group of people who are caught talking amongst themselves they're talking adoringly about people who are filled with pride and people who do wickedly as if those are the people who are really free what is going on And it's as though this group of people, they're not just talking about the pride, they're they're not just talking about those who do wickedly, they wish they were among them. They themselves, because of their their longing to be in that party, they, they could be considered proud and doing wickedly themselves. But there's a second group, if you keep reading in chapter 3, there's a second group, verse 16, it says, then those who did what? Those who feared the Lord, what were they doing? They were speaking to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who do what? Who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So the first group are people who look at the proud. They look at those who do wickedly. They they essentially are proud and wicked because of their longing to be part of that number. The second group, they're characterized by people who fear the Lord. Right? Are we seeing the two pictures so far? Yes or no? Yeah? 
this group of people, they, they're talking amongst themselves, and God likes their conversation. He actually writes a book of remembrance about them. Uh, maybe you remember the story of Esther and how uh, King Ahasuerus, he, he had this book that he was chronicling. Um, he would write down all the deeds of people who did well in his kingdom. And one night he had a sleepless night. He's like, hey, someone bring the book of remembrance to me. Because he wants to hear about what people in his kingdom are doing well. It's, rather than looking at the Inquirer or, or you know, all the news about all these things that are going down in this world, Ahasuerus, he wanted to hear about what was good. And he heard, oh wait, there was this guy named Mordecai. And he actually saved my life. What have we done to honor him? You remember that story? That was the book of remembrance. Here, God has his own book. His own book of remembrance. Who's in that book? Those who, quote-unquote, fear the Lord. These two groups, even though they're part of the same people of Israel, they're able to distinguish the two. It says in verse 18, it says in verse, actually, I skipped verse 17. Notice those who fear the Lord. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Those who fear the Lord are precious to God. We talked about that last week. And in verse 18 it says, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Eventually, these two groups will, will kind of uh, be on polar opposites, even though they're, you know, they're all part of the same camp of Israel. Uh, maybe right now we don't know who are those who are proud, who are those who actually fear the Lord. But at some point, you're going to know. You're going to know. And the natural question is, when are we going to know? How are we going to know? And that question is answered in chapter 4. Verse 1. So turn to the next chapter. In chapter 4, verse 1, this is new material here. For behold, the day is coming. What day do you think it's talking about? The day of Christ's return. The day, yeah, the great day of the Lord. The day of not just the investigative judgment, but the day of executing that judgment. For behold, the day is coming. And maybe I should just stop right here. Because I think there's something that God is, is doing here in Malachi. He's painting before the people. He's painting before a lukewarm remnant. A picture of the end. Did you catch it? For, for a lukewarm remnant, a remnant who is satisfied with just giving God leftovers, God needs to paint before them a picture of the end. And I think this is especially pertinent because in my experience, I know, that it's easy for my everyday religion to lose its meaning when I lose sight of the great day. Uh, maybe you remember the, the parable of the, the sower in Matthew chapter 13. He sowed on four different soils, the, the pathway, the rocky soil. There was a ground that was thorny. It was filled with thorns. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, he's talking about how that thorny ground, it represents those who hear the word of God, they receive the word of God, but because of the thorns of life, which are the cares of this world. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, if you're writing down notes. It says that the cares of this world actually choke out the ability of that plant, of that life, to bear fruit for God's glory. Here's the thing. When we allow the cares of this life to consume our attention, we stop giving God our best. And so God needs to, for this leftover remnant, God needs to remind them, hey, look, life is not just about this world and this world alone. 
Life is about the world to come. You see, the thorny ground soil represents those who are, who are so consumed with the cares of this world that they have no care for the world to come. And God says, no, the day is coming. There's more to this than just this life. And so in Malachi chapter 4, it says, Behold, the day is coming. And notice how that day is coming. It's burning like an oven. Now, usually when I'm thinking about something that's burning in the oven, or when I'm thinking of something that's firing up in the oven, I should say that. Uh, anyways, what I'm thinking is, it's usually like, a, oh, it's a, hey, something, I'm anticipating something. It's very interesting. This, this word oven in the Hebrew Scriptures, when it's used, it's actually uh, associated oftentimes with the presence of God himself. You remember that text in Hebrews chapter 13? For God is a consuming fire. Yeah, yeah. In other words, the day is coming when God himself is coming in his full, blazing glory. And what will happen? What will happen? Something is consumed. And it says in verse 1, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, that first group that we were just talking about, they will be, what is the word in your Bible? Stubble. Stubble. That's stuff to be burned. That's, that's combustible material. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, whoo, what a way to start the Christmas season, huh? <laughs> no, 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 this, this, let, let's, get, let's get real. Malachi, talk to us. God, what are you wanting us to hear, right? We can't miss this. Something is being consumed. It's the proud, those who do wickedly. And notice that those things are synonymous Pride really is the root of all wickedness. It's when we allow self to be in the place that only God deserves to be that sin and all of its destructive consequences result. And on that day when Jesus comes, that will be consumed. We can't miss this because, remember, the people who are talking about the proud, the people who are talking about those who do wickedly, they think that they're blessed. Right? Chapter 3, verse 15, it says that, uh, that the proud are blessed and that the wicked, they're raised up as if they're the ones that are free. But in chapter 4, verse 1, a different story is told. No, no, no. They might feel free. You might think they're free. But really, they're stubble for the fire. Whew. Different story. Our evaluation of the things of this world it, it, it doesn't match the things that, that God evaluates. In chapter 4, verse 1, pride is combustible material in the presence of a holy God. Why is that the case? Because God is anything but pride. Did you catch that? If there's anything about the Christmas story, the king of the universe becoming a baby, you need to know that your God is anything but pride. What was read earlier in the children's story, God is love. That is the complete antithesis of pride. Pride is love that's been perverted. It's love of self over love of God. And so when, when the holy God comes to meet his people, that which cannot exist in his presence is that which is the complete opposite of himself. It's pride and all of its destructive influence. Sin and all its pride does not, it cannot exist in the presence of the omni-giving, self-sacrificing God of agape love. 
And look how thorough this consumption is. Notice at the end of verse 1, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Root nor branch. Root, the things that are the source of sin, the things that give permanence to sin, all of that will be done away with. Praise the Lord. The branch, the things that come out of sin, the things that sin produces, its effects, its consequences, its shootings, its senseless violence, all of those things will be obliterated in the presence of God. I praise the Lord that we will not have to turn into the newspaper someday in eternity and read about some senseless killing. I praise the Lord that we won't have to read about uh, some, some level of int- intolerance or, or just senseless violence or, or whatever. Neither root nor branch. Because in the presence of a holy, all-giving, self-sacrificing God of love, none of that exists. And so in verse 1, we, we kind of see, okay, the real fate, okay, pride, wickedness, that's, that's consumed. <laughs> what about the other group? What about the other group? Verses 2 to 3 shifts the focus now. What is their experience when this God comes in all his blazing glory? In verse 2, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with what? With healing in his wings. This is, this is powerful. To the proud and the wicked, God is like a burning oven. To those who fear the name of the Lord, God arises with healing in his wings. Why is that the case? Because those who fear the Lord, they've had the experience of chapter 3. The refiner has already come to them. The refiner has already brought them through the fires of trial and tribulation and have purged out the impurities and the dross. They've already gone through fire. Sin has already been crucified. Self has been consumed. And so when they see God in his blazing glory, he's not a burning oven. He's the son of righteousness. It's as if those, uh, those who fear the name of the Lord, they have been caught in a moonless night, and the chill of that night is now dawning away as the sun rises with healing in its wings. Oh, come Lord Jesus, they say. That's the experience of those who fear the name of the Lord, and that's the experience that God wants for each and every one of us. That's why it says in verse 2, but to you, yeah? But to you who fear my name. Oh, man, I want to be part of that group. God wants us to be part of that group. And you know, I think a good question at this point would be to ask, what then does it really mean to fear the name of the Lord? Yeah? What in the world does that mean to really fear God? We've heard this before. In fact, in the first angel's message of Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it says, fear God. This is an end time appeal that needs to be given. Yet what does it really mean when we say fear God? You ready to do a little Bible study? This is, okay, so hold your place here in Malachi chapter 4 because I think this is super critical. This is something that I need to be reminded of day by day. All right, so the first time you ever see the phrase, fear God, it's in Genesis chapter 22. So go there very quickly. Genesis chapter 22. And um, I should say this, this is not an exhaustive study of what it means to fear the Lord or fear God or fear the name of the Lord. Um, if you want you could spend months on that one too. But let me just give you a few verses that will give you some, some uh, points of reference as you're studying what it really means to fear God. 
If you're in Genesis, this is the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, go ahead and say amen. amen. All right. It's in verse 12 that we find the first ever usage of the phrase, fear God. Let me tell you this story. Abraham is being tested by God. Abraham has just been asked to go to Mount Moriah, and what was he supposed to do on top of that mountain? Sacrifice his son? The son that God had promised to him? The son in whom all his hopes of an offspring were built? What is God doing? And Abraham faithfully obeys the voice of the Lord. And at the moment where it seems like, you know, he's really going to go through with this, in verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. Now here it is, verse 12. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do nothing to him, for now I know that you what? Fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What this first usage tells us about fearing God, it's not about an attitude of, of shaking and trembling. What it is, it's not holding anything back from God. Do you follow it today? It's absolute trust, absolute surrender that says, you know what? God has a better way of doing things than I do, even if it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to hold anything back from God. Go to Exodus chapter 20, 20. Chapter 20, verse 20. So you're in Genesis, just go to the next book to the right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. This is a, a really uh, helpful verse because it actually puts the two kinds of fear right next to each other. The fear of being afraid, that kind of fear, and then the fear of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right. We know Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the, is the chapter in which God speaks the Ten Commandments. And after these things, after he speaks the Ten Commandments, in verse 20, the Bible says, And Moses said to the people, Do not what? Fear. Do not fear. Wait, wait. I thought you were telling us to fear. Okay. Notice what, what Moses is doing. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Moses is telling the people, don't be afraid of God. God is doing this. He's speaking this so that the true biblical fear of God would be in you. And the result, according to the, the last part of verse 20, the result, so that you may not, what? So that you may not sin. To fear God, then, is not to be afraid or to be terrorized by God, but to fear God is to fear to sin against Him. To fear God is to fear to live apart from Him, that the very thought of living apart from Him troubles you. Does that make sense today? Yeah. So that's what fearing God is. Say, okay, God, you've got everything. I'm withholding nothing. And to, to live apart from that, to live apart from a trust in you, man, that, that just troubles my soul. I'm not going to do that. Later on in, in the book of Psalms, actually, let's, okay, let's go there too. Psalm 130. <laughs> Psalm 130. This is just powerful. Because you ask yourself, where does that kind of attitude even come from? You know, does that, is that just something like a, a switch that we flip and we say, oh, okay, 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 yeah, life with God is really the best. Psalm 130 verse 4 is super helpful because it, it really demonstrates where fear for the Lord really comes from. 
Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and we'll read verse 3 and 4. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you're there, say, I found it. All right, all right. Psalm 130, verse 3. The Bible says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is, what's the next word in your Bible? Forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Fear of God stems from an experience of his forgiveness. The fear of the Lord that says, I will hold nothing back from God. The fear of the Lord that, that fears to even live apart from God. That fear comes from a recognition of a God who gave his only son that you and I could be forgiven. And when we realize his forgiveness, oh, then genuine fear of God stirs in our heart. And a cross-reference to this, we don't have to go there, but in Psalm 147, verse 11, it says that those who hope in your mercy, those who fear the Lord are those who hope in your mercy. In other words, they, they just cling to the mercy of God. They realize what put Jesus on the cross, and they don't want, have, they don't want to have any part of that. Psalm 147, verse 11, sorry. Psalm 147, verse 11, those who fear the Lord, there are those who hope in his mercy. And so, um, okay, one more. Can we do one more on the fear of God? Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs is the very next book, so if you're in Psalms, just go to the right a little bit. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Now, if you're in Proverbs, you probably remember that phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? When we start to really fear God like this, to cultivate this kind of trust in Him, then we can really understand what's going on in life. You know, that, that's the beginning of wisdom. To truly get it, it starts with trusting God. All right, but here, Proverbs 8, verse 13 gives a very specific result of what it is to fear God. Proverbs 8, verse 13, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, here's an equals equation. You know, if, you're, if you think in those types of concrete terms, notice verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Very simply put, simply put. When you see... God's forgiveness and what it cost him, the infinite price of the infinite sacrifice of Jesus. You're thinking to yourself, then why would I want any part of the things that put Jesus on the cross? When you think like that, that's the fear of the Lord. That's it. And so for those who have this kind of trust in God that don't hold anything back from God, for those who cling to him and say, oh man, living apart from him, I don't want anything to do with that. For those who hope in his mercy, have a, have a sense of his forgiveness. These are the kinds of people that when Jesus comes, his full glory is blazing grace. Did you hear that phrase? Yeah, I got that one from a, a teacher of mine long ago. He said, you've heard of amazing grace? Well, here in the Old Testament, we see God's blazing grace. <laughs> Blazing grace. Why? Because the Son of Righteousness, He'll rise with healing in His wings. He'll consume the things that once consumed us. He'll rise with healing in His wings. Go back to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. The rest of the chapter now gives a divine prescription of sorts of how to persist in this fear of the Lord. How to cultivate 
this fear of the Lord, though we find ourselves lukewarm, though we find ourselves satisfied with giving God leftovers, how do we do this? The divine prescription in Malachi chapter 4, if you're there, say amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and then 5 and 6, we start to see what God is going to do here. Verse 4, the Bible says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. This is really interesting. One of the ways that God wants to make sure that we stir in our hearts a fear of the Lord that's true and biblical is to remember the law of Moses, to look back at something and to look back specifically at the law of Moses. Now, this is very interesting because when you think of the law of Moses, what do you think of? Ten Commandments? Yeah, yeah. Okay, when, when, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God instructed the children of Israel with the Ten Commandments, right? But there's more to this. Moses didn't just receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Do you know what else he received? Statutes and judgments, yeah? When he came down in Exodus chapter 25, God was giving him instructions of how to build him a sanctuary that, they, that he might dwell among them. So the rest of the book of Exodus, it's actually the things that Moses wrote down while he was listening to God as a, as a, as a scribe, so to speak, on top of Mount Sinai, of how to build the sanctuary, the, the pattern of this, the symbolism of that, and all these kinds of things. Very interesting that the law of Moses not just includes, you know, the moral law, the Decalogue, but it also includes a depiction of the sanctuary and all of its services. Why would it be important? Why would it be important? Because when we remember how you know, how in the sanctuary God reveals himself, we're actually seeing how God is going to move to save his people. We talked about this last week, that the sanctuary is an unfolding, it's an object lesson, it's a simple, concrete depiction of what God would do as the lamb to forgive us of our sin, but also as the priest to deliver us from the presence of sin altogether. You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, especially in the, in the wake of 1844 and the great disappointment, you know, the early Advent pioneers, they really saw this as a key for interpreting what they were going through. They said, oh, remember the law of Moses. Well, what did the law of Moses tell us? The law of Moses, it, it showed us this, you know, the, the sanctuary services and all of these things, and it allowed them to see how God was fulfilling the sanctuary services in their midst. You know, the, the Day of Atonement and the cleansing of the sanctuary. But there's something else. There's something else. Uh, in, actually, again, put a book, bookmark here. Go to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, verse 46. I hope you're still ready to study, huh? Because <laughs> we haven't even gotten to Elijah, and it's coming. <laughs> Leviticus 26, verse 46 It's almost a direct quote from Leviticus 26, verse 46. When you found Leviticus, go ahead and say amen. So it's Genesis, Exodus. Oh man, I just totally lost it. (laughs) Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, thank you. Leviticus, there it is. If you found it, say I found it before the preacher. Here we go. All right. It's been one of those weeks. Leviticus 26, 46. Okay, as your eyes are on verse 46, let me just read to you what we just read in Malachi 4 and see if you hear any resemblance. 
In Malachi 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Do you see any, any resonance, any resemblance there in Leviticus 26.46? Let, let me read uh, 26.46 in Leviticus. It says, These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, which is also known as Mount Horeb, by the hand of Moses. What's interesting is that this is the concluding verse of, obviously, Leviticus 26, But Leviticus 26 is an outline of what's known as the blessings and the curses of a covenant-keeping God. And so in Malachi, when, when, when there's this group who fear the name of the Lord, they are a group who remember that there is a covenant-keeping God who is true to his word, And he's interested in a people who will have faith in his word. There is a a reality that Malachi wants us to understand. There's a dynamic dynamic that, that is easy to forget. Malachi's audience was in danger of just assuming that God would just fulfill his promises because he promised it. Malachi's audience, remember, they, they were the remnant who had just returned from Babylon. They were waiting for Jerusalem and, and their, their national identity to kind of be restored, yet they were still actually under foreign rule. They were still overseen by the Persian Empire. And so Malachi's people, the, day in Mal- or the people of Malachi's day, they were just kind of like twiddling their thumbs, thinking, okay, God said he would do this. When is he going to do this? But they weren't mindful of the fact that God had promised these things on condition. And so Malachi said, hey, remember, remember the love, remember this covenant. This is how God has, he has been covenant, he has been faithful in the covenant to you. The question is, have you been faithful in that covenant with him? Remember that law, and that will inspire a fear of the Lord. Could we be in danger of the same? You know, what promises are we waiting for God to fulfill? That where I am, there you may be also, right? Oh yeah, I'm waiting for that promise, yeah. There are conditions. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end shall come. Could we ever fall into that same trap of just like, well, God's going to come sometime without recognizing that there's a responsibility on our part too? Oh Lord, cause us to remember that dynamic waiting for God to fulfill his word while having little regard of the word ourselves. This is, this is what Malachi's people were, were up to, and I wonder if, if we need to be safeguarded from the same. So the simple appeal is to live in light of that cause and effect dynamic, that God is happy to prove faithful to us when we are full of faith in him. Does that make sense today? Yeah? So this is the fear of God that's inspired by, by looking back, remembering, oh, what God has done in the past and what he wants to do in the future. And now this is, this is kind of the trajectory. Verse 5 now launches us, not just for looking back, remembering the law of Moses. Now it launches us into what's God going to do to come. In Malachi chapter 4, so turn back there now. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Here it comes. Behold, God says. That's God's fancy way of saying, check it out right? Check this. Behold, I will send you 
Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That last phrase is it's kind of reminding us of this whole covenant dynamic. And there's so much here, and I don't think we have the time for it. But here's the point. God is going to send something. Particularly, he says, he labels this something as Elijah. Elijah. That God would send Elijah before the, great, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah was the man that was used by God to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Elijah lived in a time where people thought, uh, you know what, we, we are God's people, but let's pray to Baal for rain. <laughs> we belong to God, but let's go worship in the temple of Baal. The, the, Elijah lived amongst the people that were just, yeah, far off, okay? Out, yeah, just right out there. And so Elijah, on Mount Carmel, in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 37, on Mount Carmel, he prays this prayer. He says, O Lord God, let it be known this day that you are God and that you would turn the hearts of the people again. That was his prayer. On Mount Carmel, that was, the, that was the essential effect of his work, his ministry. So the first Elijah, you remember what happened after he prayed that prayer, right? God consumed this, this, uh, this offering that was set up on the altar that was doused by tons and tons of water. I don't know where they got that water during a time of drought, but they got it somehow. And God demonstrated, oh, I am the Lord God. And it turned the people's hearts back to God. The people immediately said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Which is exactly what the name Elijah actually means. Did you know that? So you might think, hey, they're chanting Elijah's name. No, they're just saying, the Lord, he is God. So this first Elijah actually turned people back to the God they had forsaken. So the essence of Malachi's prophecy, when God says, I will send Elijah, what God is essentially promising is that God will work to stir repentance among his people if there's ever a departure from that covenant relationship again. So here's a people that God wants, he said, hey, you are those who fear my name. So, so keep that fear strong by remembering the law of Moses and look ahead for those times where I will send Elijah to keep that fear strong. To keep you turning in repentance to God. Have we seen a fulfillment of that? Have we seen a fulfillment of an Elijah actually coming? The answer is we have and we are. First fulfillment, New Testament fulfillment. His name was John the Baptist. How do we know this? Because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, Jesus actually applies the prophecy of Malachi 3, verse 1. Uh, you know, just actually the previous chapter, Malachi 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jesus actually quotes that and says, That was about John the Baptist. In that same chapter of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says it plainly. He says, John himself is Elijah who is to come. You can't get any more plain than that. Jesus said, Hey, you've seen Elijah. And what did John the Baptist do? What did John the Baptist do? John's life, his mission, was about turning hearts to God. 
quickly go with me to Luke. Hold your finger here in Malachi, and we're going to Luke. Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, this is also part of the, you know, the, the Christmas story. So if you're looking for a Christmas sermon, here it is. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 16. So if you're in Malachi, you just go Matthew, Mark, then Luke. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 16. An angel is speaking to John the Baptist's father, who is Zachariah, or Zacharias. And this angel is actually giving Zacharias an anticipation of what John the Baptist's life and mission would be like. Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> Man, when you're you're kind of expecting, wouldn't you like to know what, what you're supposed to do with your kid? And here's the angel. He says in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of who? Of Elijah. And notice, here's quoting Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And notice the rest, as if it's an explanation of what that turning really means. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Like when people are off track, when people aren't fearing the Lord, when people have departed from that plain covenant with God, Elijah would turn them back to the wisdom of the just, the good sense of people walking with the Lord. And the rest of it, verse 17, here's the ultimate result, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So when Jesus was saying to his disciples, hey, if you'll accept this, John the Baptist, he was Elijah. What is he, Jesus is essentially saying is, I'm the Lord. Are you prepared? Jesus has come. And because of John the Baptist's ministry, People were prepared for the Lord. They were primed to receive that testimony in John 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. People were ready to hear that. And people who were prepared by that Elijah ran after the Savior. This is the God that John the Baptist was turning people to. They were ready to respond to John's testimony. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, there is a covenant God who is willing to pay the price of that covenant himself. He's the Lamb. And that makes it possible for a relationship with him. The people were prepared for the coming of the Lord. That was the New Testament fulfillment. But if you go back to Malachi chapter 4, there's something, something that this, this prophecy almost necessitates another fulfillment. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and what day? Now, I've never really thought about the coming of Jesus as a baby as a dreadful day. I've never really thought about the coming of Jesus, you know, at the shores of the Jordan River as the Messiah. I've never thought about that as the coming of the dreadful day of the Lord. So the fact that Malachi's prophecy is anticipating Elijah before the coming of the dreadful day of the Lord, the, the day that burns like an oven, or for others, the day that's like the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. That means, that necessitates an end time fulfillment in addition to the New Testament fulfillment. Do you follow that? Yes or no, yeah? So while John the Baptist was a preliminary fulfillment, there was actually 
a secondary fulfillment at the end of time. What this prophecy is anticipating is that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, God would inspire not just a messenger, but a movement. That before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, God would inspire an end-time movement that would do, just as John did, prepare a people for the Lord. That God would send a message to prepare people for the refiner's arrival. Just as Elijah led people to worship the true God, and just as John the Baptist made people ready to behold the Lamb of God, there would be an end-time movement who causes people to behold the high priest who is coming in blazing grace. (laughs) This end-time movement would prepare a people for the Lord by calling for the worship of the true God. It would be a prophetic movement to call people away from the pride of wickedness. A prophetic movement to call people to fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and springs of water. It's an end-time movement. Do you know the name of that movement? It's a prophetic movement that has been raised up in these special times. The Seventh-day Adventist movement is the Elijah movement. We have been commissioned to make ready a people to meet their God. So you wonder why we do things the way we do, why we preach things the way we preach. It's because we're not just preaching to make people feel good. It's because we're making people ready for the return of the Lord. Why do we keep preaching prophecy? Well, because that's what God did. When people lost sight of what life was all about, God needed to give, behold, the day is coming. That's why we preach prophecies. Do you follow today? Prophetically, the end time Elijah, their message is outlined in what's known as the three angels' messages. And one day soon, we will do a full-on series on the three angels' messages. And it ultimately results in a people who are prepared to meet God. At the end of the three angels' messages, Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. This is a people that's prepared to meet their Lord. Here's the big picture, connecting all the dots now. God has been and still is at work in this world. Amen. You know, you you read too many news headlines and you kind of wonder, right? But God has been and is still at work in this world. What is he doing? He's wanting to turn people's hearts back to God. He's wanting to stir and inspire genuine fear of the Lord to lead people, to withhold nothing from him, to realize that the things that put him on the cross are things that we don't want to do anything with. (laughs) God is still at work to do this. That's why I loved how Malachi says it. Behold, I will send. I'm going to do this. If there's ever a time where you're departing from that plain path, I'm going to send Elijah. We all know that we ought to give God our best. This is what we've been talking about this whole month. These last few weeks, we we all know that we ought to give God our best. The only trouble is we're totally incapable of giving God our best. Do you know that? (laughs) We're incapable of doing that. 
But what this prophecy reminds me is that God pledges himself to work in us, to will and to do of his good pleasure. I will send Elijah. You are those who fear mine. God is pledging himself to work that in us. Could it be that God, in in inviting us to give him our best, could it be that giving God our best really boils down to surrendering to the Spirit's work in us? Letting him fulfill his prophecy and promise in and through us? God wants to do it. The question is, will we let him? (laughs) Will we let him? You know, we've kind of been boiling down to these practical takeaways. Okay, what are we going to do to give God our best? But essentially, it comes down to what will we let God do? What will we let God do? Will we let God cast before us a vision of not just this life, but the life to come, to keep us fresh and finding meaning in the present as we see it in the context of the future? Will we let him do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, God, give us that mentality. And here's the bigger question. Will we let him work in us the fear of the Lord? That fear that we were talking about earlier. Will we let him work in us and lead us to that point of withholding nothing back from him? How many of you long for that? You just want to give God that green light today. Amen. Today, let's let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, that's, that's essentially our heart cry. Not help us do, but just a green light giving you permission. Please do this in us. The promise of Philippians 2.13 is it says, God works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Lord, you've said that you would send Elijah. Would you please stir in us a true fear of God that would give you the best that you deserve? We pray this individually. We pray this as households. We pray this as a household of faith. Oh, Father, stir us to receive the Elijah message and also to resound it. We pray in Jesus' name. Let the family say, amen. 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 Praise God.